Hello, and welcome to the EuroWhat, episode number 65 for the week of November 4, 2019. I'm Mike McComb, and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Ahoy, Mike. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this week, we'll be talking about when Lebanon tried to compete at Eurovision. How's it going, Ben? Uh, it's good. Uh, we have officially passed daylight savings time in the U.S., which means that it's just dark at 4.30. Yay. <laughs> and, yeah, and, it, and we just have to live in that world for like six months now. I love it. Uh, yeah, well, just just a lot of, I don't know, camping out in front of the TV, watching a lot of singing competitions. I guess that's why we do this podcast. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's all about coping with winter. So <laughs> I will say that I'm look I'm looking forward to selection season starting up soon. I do too. And we'll be talking about that in just a little bit. Starting off with the news desk, they have announced what next year's slogan is going to be. And it's going to be open up. Hold for giggles. Yep. And the internet had that for five seconds and then immediately made it dirty. I mean, in fairness. Multiple people signed off on this. Multiple people had to have gotten, oh, okay, this is kind of cheeky and fun. Yeah, and I like that they did release a video uh, kind of going over how they came up with the concept and that it's about, it's sort of addressing like how everybody's in kind of like isolationist mode right now. And it's like, no, we're mm-hmm. it's all supposed to be about togetherness. I do like it from the, the sense that it is deliberately unfinished. Mm-hmm. Because I think about, like, the the first theme of Eurovision that I recall is from Serbia 2008 and was, like, a confluence of sounds. Yeah. Because there's there's two rivers and water metaphors, etc. But this one is just just the idea of open up. This can be open up to lots of things. Could be, like, open up to different genres of music. So dubstep could be making a comeback. One can only hope. Hope is such an unusual word to put there. Uh, sure. Uh... <laughs> It is not open up to Kazakhstan participating in the in the contest, but that's a that's a different thing, yeah. and we can yeah. Although talk about that, I don't know later. Like, I mean, since it is going to be the sixty fifth edition, they they could have some surprises in store. I don't know if it's going to be at the level of like inviting Australia to the contest uh, back for the sixtieth edition. Oh, good point. There there's like plenty of time to like book special guests and not tell us about them. Mm-hmm. Even though it's November, it's still early ish. There's a lot of other planning that's going on. Uh, there are some rumors floating around that they uh, have either figured out who the hosts are going to be or that there's not going to be more than three hosts, which fingers crossed that that rumor is true. As much as I would love for the opening ceremony of the contest to include like a full three tier human pyramid <laughs> of, of six hosts mm-hmm. bounced precariously on top of one another. That's too many hosts. Yeah. Four is too many hosts. Like three is great because you can you have two of them who are on the main stage and another one who is banished to the green room for not learning the French. Although with the human pyramid thing, if they do some sort of like bring it on style number, I might be convinced that that could work. But <laughs> for some reason, I don't think that that's on their planning board. Well, yeah, it's, it's probably not. That's probably like a nice to have. And like, honestly, like trying to find someone who has broadcast experience and is cool with like gymnastics like that has got to be tough. Elsewhere, Duncan Lawrence has released his follow-up single. And yeah, that's about my reaction to it. Yeah. No. <laughs> 
it, it's fine. It's appropriately titled Love Don't Hate It, which is, again, fair because I I don't hate it. I can't say I love it, but it's definitely a song. And I think this is kind of my issue with Duncan Lawrence in general. Like, I, I just don't think he's for me. And that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Particularly with this single, it's just kind of going into that... It's not quite Fallout Boy, but it's certainly like Brandon Yuri, Panic at the Disco. Like that vocal range mm-hmm. is like nails on the chalkboard for me. And okay, um, that's, that's fair. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like I know that that is what is popular right now. So I'm, I I am cool with that. I've, I've been cool with that for most of my life. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that does it for our thoughts on the Duncan Lords follow-up single. We have a follow-up from our last episode. Uh, so we were talking about the big tie of 1969 and how there wasn't a tiebreaker system in place. And Alex reached out to us on Twitter to remind us that in 1970, they did kind of slap together some sort of tiebreaker procedure if uh, something that goofy happened again. Juries of countries not in the tie vote again among the tied candidate. Kind of like on Survivor, where like if there's a tie at tribal council, the two people who are in the tie, they don't vote again. Everybody else votes again, and uh, somebody goes home. If there's another tie, then they just declare co-winners. Then they, then they just kind of like dust off their hands and go, well, we tried. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I'm kind of glad that I did a poor job of doing my research because like I'm just mad about that. Yeah. I mean, especially because like that's just not satisfying no, at all. No, it, it, it feels so slapped together. Yeah. I went back and looked at the results for 1969 to see how this would have played out if that same system were in place. So you had 16 countries competing. Four of them were tied. So those four countries aren't voting so that's 120 points uh from the other 12 countries up for grabs if you look at how the jurors voted on that one and you only counted the jurors who didn't vote for one of the four that were in the tie that was almost half the jury like there were 60 points like up for grabs that it was just be like oh, okay you didn't vote for any of these four but now you have to vote for one of these four so that's kind of not great. Like Luxembourg, it wasn't that big of a deal because there was only one juror who voted outside of that set. So that's just one juror who had to reassign their vote. But like Finland, nine of their jurors would have had to revote. And, and this is assuming that a juror isn't going to change their vote uh, the second time around. Norway had eight votes. Yugoslavia had seven votes. Like, I mean, you're basically saying to these countries, be like, LOL, you voted wrong. Try again. <laughs> And then if you look at the countries that were in the tie, like Spain, they didn't vote for any of the finalists. I mean, obviously, they didn't vote for themselves, but they didn't Mm -hmm. vote for UK. They didn't vote for France. They didn't vote for Netherlands. But since they were in the tie, their jurors don't get to vote at all. So it's like, LOL, thanks for playing. Spain's just going to be mad. Spain is just going to be over here in the corner seething. Yeah, yeah. So I am so glad that they came up with uh, a less goofy system. Uh (laughs) Yes. But yeah, my, my main reaction to just listening to the amount of math you did was, in summation, ranked choice voting. I mostly say that as someone who had multiple separate friends who dressed as ranked choice voting for Halloween this year. Oh, wow. What'd that costume look yeah. like? One of them was a sexy ranked choice voting costume, which I do not understand how that works. <laughs> um, but the other one just had, like, a number of options on a t-shirt and numbers that you could, like, Velcro. Okay. That got the point across. One of them actually did have, like, a petition with them for people to sign because we do want it on the ballot. Oh, nice. 
Well, anyways, that's ma- that's that's what Massachusetts <laughs> looks like for you. Yeah, and that sounds so much more practical than what then, would have happened in this. 1970. Yeah, so. yeah. Like again, like I'm kind of glad I did a bad job of my research on that one, just because I'm just still mad about yeah. it. It's been two weeks <laughs> since we taped the dang show. Yeah. Thank you, Alex, for reminding us of this. For and, reminding us that yeah. yes, uh, they did they did think of a way to do that in 1970. It just feels like such. A, well, this is never going to happen again, so let's just do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's such a bad idea. On the plus side, we now have so many more countries mm-hmm. that can vote. We, we move further and further away from situations like this happening because we have 41 countries are now confirmed for the 2020 Eurovision Song Contest. Woo! Yeah, since we last checked in, Armenia has confirmed, and most importantly, Bulgaria has confirmed that they're back. Yay! They have wasted no time with that announcement. They're like, yes, we're going to be in the contest, and on November 25th, we are going to announce our artists. Yeah, like, they, they've been on a PR blitz. They have. Uh, one, of the, one of the news pieces I read is that because Bulgaria has spent a lot of money on this in the past, and that's why they kind of took last year off, mm-hmm. Uh, is that they partnered with some sort of sponsor. I'm not sure if it's a record label, but no clue if that means that, again, that we are working with a record label and they have an artist they want to promote, or if it's just like Bulgaria Groceries Delivery Express <laughs> presents the the jingle. I can't imagine that they're going to do a major shift in strategy since their last few entries have done, even though 2018 was kind of a dud, it was still incredibly good for Bulgaria. And like they, they were on such a tear. It felt like they were, they were like going 110% at, yes, we're going to try and win this thing. Mm-hmm. We are still waiting to hear from Moldova. And more importantly, we are still waiting to hear from Hungary. Uh, everybody is kind of panicking about Hungary potentially not being in it next year just because they've said that Adal is going to promote the Hungarian music scene rather than be the selection method. Mm-hmm. It could just be that they are doing a lot of internal work to figure out, okay, how are we going to pick our Eurovision person then? Are we going to do Eurovision? The fact that they haven't explicitly said that they're not doing Eurovision makes me think that there's at least some sort of wrangling going on. Right. And like they they are being very consistent in their messaging when asked about it. Right. It's possible that they do ultimately withdraw, but I think if that was the goal, they would have announced that part by now. They would have just said, yeah, we're just going to do a doll next year and we're not going to do Eurovision. Elsewhere in selection season, Albania has announced the dates for their annual festival where they pick their artist. Yes. And song. Just from that reaction, I I assume that you are excited, Mike. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, even though I give Albania a lot of grief for how tedious, yeah, we'll go with tedious, uh, the uh, Festivali Congress can be uh, as a television program. I've liked what Albania has been sending. I don't know. It's uh, it's also like they're typically the first to like have like the full selection process done. So um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, it's just like getting the ball rolling. I always think of Albania as being like, good Christmas morn to you all. We have chosen our artist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The festival is scheduled to happen on December 19, 20, and 22. And then let's see. We have a boatload of Eurovision in the wild. Yeah. And totally unexpected. Like usually with Eurovision in the wild, we kind of plan it out a little bit, but there's just been so many random things that have popped up in the last couple of weeks. There's a clip floating around of UK game show Mastermind where uh, one of the contestants uh, as her specialty subject was uh, Eurovision in the 21st century. 
And I enjoy Mastermind quite a bit just because of the depth of knowledge that's required a lot of the categories. And Eurovision just seems like a terrifying category to use because it just seems like anything is fair game. Like they'd be like, who's who was the songwriter for this entry that finished 23rd and blah, 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 blah. And just be like, I, I don't know. Like there's just so many factoids that they could pull from but i did surprisingly well in the category i was yeah, very i proud. did surprisingly well too like there were like a few questions that were like that granular level of detail of like what song was there a stage interruption by this person or which entry did grand norton call this thing that was fun to see and she did really well i think she only missed two uh two questions out of like 12 or 13 so yeah um, like it was very impressive yeah also on the game show tip there was another eurovision uh question on jeopardy which i don't know if it's just because i'm paying more attention to it now or maybe it's finally breaking through the at least the trivia american culture scene Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but yeah like this is like the second or third time this year that there's been uh eurovision content on jeopardy and the contestants always seem to get it so it's like all right we're doing our job here, Ben. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I know that it tends to pop up, like, at least in, like, the quiz bowl circuit from time to mm-hmm. time, because I've done a couple quiz bowl level things where, like, one of the things where if you get to, like, the, a certain round that's like, well, now it's time for the obligatory Eurovision bonus mm-hmm. question. Like, I had jokingly said to the team I was on that, hey, if there's anything about Eurovision, I've got us covered. And you should have seen the look on my face when when they announced that, that was the bonus <laughs> question. I just, like, cracked my knuckles and I was like, like was, was practically buzzing in before the questions were done. Yeah, it was in Israel this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's this. And Celine Dion. Yeah. Because <laughs> the third question is always, what, uh, what artist other than ABBA? It's like, it's always Celine Dion. Yeah. And that was the thing that was really weird because uh, the question this time around was about Madonna performing at Eurovision. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you could un- you would know it if you were like a Madonna fan as well. But it, it just seemed like it was kind of like a sideways way of getting to it. And yeah, I was like, oh, this is neat. So <laughs> one of these Eurovisions in the wild was like hours before we taped. Mm. Amongst other things, a voracious reader, uh, it's especially in like pop culture things. Uh, Elton John has a new memoir out called Me. As I was reading the book today, I was like, oh, wow, we're in like 1968. Oh, wow, we're in 1969. I wonder if he's going to talk about, about Eurovision. And he does. Ooh. He does. And it sounds like uh, Sir Elton is not perhaps a fan. And in fairness, the song that he wrote with Bernie Toppin finished six out of six songs. Hmm. Amongst things he says, uh, back then Eurovision wasn't quite the orgy of embarrassment it is now, but still. It wasn't like Pink Floyd and Soft Machine were queuing up to get involved. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, he calls Boom Bang a Bang something drunk Germans would slap their knees to in a, bar- in a Bavarian beer hall. I mean, I think that's fair, I mean, it's, but I not, don't think he's that's... not wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, but it's also just like, well... Yes, like I, I, I believe that's what I requested. So <laughs> that's on bookshelves now. I don't want to give away all of that in case you're in case you're going to the book for only the Eurovision content. Right, but yeah, that that's that's cool that you stumbled upon that. Yeah, <laughs> orgy of embarrassment. Uh, I feel like yeah, that, yes. that that could also be a tagline for this podcast. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Netta is popping up on postage stamps in Chad. In Chad, not Israel, Chad. Yeah, Chad is releasing, it's sort of a Eurovision series. It, it's a little unclear what the intention of this project is, because it's uh, stamps including ABBA uh, and like their participation in Eurovision, and then also including Netta. 
And that's being attributed to Chad now recognizing Israel like as Israel. Okay. Which, yeah, which is Our- a big deal, but this just seems like a weird way to commemorate that i don't know <laughs> yes are, are they also recognizing sweden as a country formally now yeah i don't know what their relations are at present but perhaps uh <laughs> sweden know what was they it did just like the, was it just like we need two reasons to issue these as stamps and they just kind of panicked and were like well we can also include sweden i mean on the other hand everyone loves abba true yeah i mean it I I didn't do any research on like ABBA Chad relations, so it, it's possible that they could be like one of the biggest acts ever in Chad. Because like I think that might be the case in Australia that like ABBA. I just really hope that there's an ABBA Chad relations page on Wikipedia where I can learn more. If not, we can try to create one and see how how long it takes for it before and it's taken down. It, see how long we can keep it up there before it gets slapped down by the man. Yeah. So. <laughs> And by the man, I mean Wikipedia editors who take their job very seriously. Thank you for your service. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, but yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of segues into our main topic uh, for this week, which I, I am delightfully in the dark about, uh, just because that's how we're doing things now. And I was just like, oh, Lebanon. I didn't know that they did anything with the with the contest. Yeah. So after we were talking about Morocco a few episodes back, I wanted to look into other countries that could potentially compete in Eurovision, but otherwise haven't. Um, So, like, Scotland, Wales, the Faroe Islands, they'd like to compete, but they don't meet the EBU's definition of independent nations. We're probably not going to see them there anytime soon. Kazakhstan, Qatar, Liechtenstein, they're interested, but they don't have all, they don't meet all of the eligibility requirements either, uh, because their broadcaster isn't the right level of membership or uh, doesn't have uh, a current membership. So we could see them one day, but there's just some administrative hurdles that uh, they need to get over first. Uh, But there is one country that meets both the independent nation criterion and the member broadcaster criterion. And they did try to compete in 2005 and that is Lebanon. So Ben, you mentioned that you, didn't really know much about Lebanon, but what, what do you know about Lebanon at Eurovision? I think we could just start with what do you know about Lebanon? It's, it's about the same level but okay. I know about Lebanon at the Eurovision Song Contest, which is that it's it's a country in kind of the Middle East, mm-hmm. kind of that, that area. The Human League wrote a song about it in the 80s. End of list. Okay. Uh, ge- ge- geography was never my subject. Okay. All right. I guess to get started, let's just kind of talk about the 2005 contest like as a whole, or at least what, what the goals were, uh, the, the mission statement the of the 2005 me, yes. contest. Uh, so Ukraine won in 2004 uh, with the song Wild Dances uh, by Ruslana. Uh, so they got mm-hmm. to host, uh, at, as is almost always the case. And the 2005 edition was going to be the 50th edition of the contest. So, Oh, no, that's a big number that we pay attention to. Yeah, so it's kind of a big deal. 39 countries ultimately competed uh, at the contest, uh, which was the biggest field at the time. They introduced the semifinal format in 2004. Uh, it, it was still kind of in its infancy, so it was just a single semifinal. It wasn't the two-day semifinal format that we have now. So on night one uh, of the contest, it was going to feature 25 countries competing for 10 slots in the grand final. Two of those countries were Bulgaria and Moldova, uh, <laughs> speaking of them, uh, which were making their debuts at the contest. 
Uh, Hungary also returned to the contest after taking six years off. Uh, they had finished 23rd in 1998, and they're just like, eh, we're good for now. So kind of interesting that they're popping up again in sort of similar circumstances. Something, something, time is a flat circle. Yeah, something like that. I, I'm pretty sure I have that in my notes three or four times. <laughs> that is going to be a theme. So the grand final included the big four. Italy wasn't in that set because they were still in their mega hiatus. The top 10 from 2004, and then uh, the semifinal qualifiers. So Hungary and Moldova, they did qualify for the final. Moldova was represented by Zdob Zdub, and they finished in sixth place, uh, which was their best finish uh, until 2017, once again in Ukraine, where they finished in third. So <laughs> I thought that was neat. Time, flat circle, all of that. Yeah. Uh, they were also the band that uh, represented Moldova in 2011 with the fairy unicyclist. Yeah. One of my favorite songs and performances of all time. I couldn't find anything one way or the other if Eurovision was trying to do anything special in terms of like expansion for the celebration of 50 years, kind of like uh, with Australia appearing uh, for the 60th anniversary. But it kind of makes sense that they would try to do an expansion thing, particularly if they were going to be sticking with the semifinal format. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody can hop in and play. In October of 2004, Lebanon announced that they will debut at Eurovision in 2005. Eventually, they named their artist and their song, which was Aline Lahoud, uh, with the song Quand Tout S'enfuit. Ben, did you watch the video for this? I did watch the video for this. What did you think? Coming to this song after the fact and having just consumed vast quantities of Eurovision, mm-hmm. particularly recently, uh, it felt kind of like standard like Eurovision ballad fodder. There were bits of it that felt like they could slot in like any time in like, the past five years, ballad-wise, and be just fine. Hmm. Yeah, I think my takeaway from it was that it was very of its time. and I, Yeah, well, the video in particular. Yeah. Very 2005. <sighs> But just thinking about Morocco and how that felt like an interesting synthesis of 70s disco plus Arabic music, mm-hmm. uh, this felt less like that. Like, this felt much closer to to just Eurovision. I would agree with that. Like, there were... Not that there's, like, a Lebanese identity at Eurovision, the way that there's, like, a Romanian identity, a Ukrainian identity, a, like... Uh, like a Frenchness ab- uh, about France's entries, um, right? Because like there was a definite different flavor to to Morocco's entry in 1980. Yeah, I think the video was really kind of peppering my absorption of the song because it was like this was right before YouTube, so it was still that sort of half professional video quality well and also just like, that's featuring like digital surveillance things yeah yeah like the whole thing really felt like the uh jenny cam it felt like that and it felt like it like it was mixing up with like what like people like mia was doing with her her maya album and mm. what like charlie xcx is kind of playing with in like a very 90s early 2000s way right now mm. yeah at least vi- at least visually and then there was yeah just the the jenny cam sort of a deal too yeah, but uh-uh. but but also shades of like Kelly Rowland getting mad that Nelly didn't text her on a spreadsheet on her phone <laughs> from the dilemma video. 
Like it's that level of of, of technical competence with oh. with the surveillance. Um, uh, <laughs> I was not expecting she, that at all. Thank you. Got, <laughs> nope. Nope. She got so mad at Nelly. It's like you texted him on a spreadsheet. Oh wow. Why does your phone have Excel? Oh man. Oh yeah. That that. Yeah, we we, we will share that video on Twitter. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of background on uh, Aline LaHood. Uh, she was 24 at the time, and since 2005, uh, she's continued to perform and record. Yeah, her most recent claim to fame was in 2014, uh, when she competed on the third season of France's version of The Voice. Uh, she was knocked out in the battle rounds. It is interesting to note that the winner of that season uh, was Amir, who went on to represent France at Eurovision in 2016. So more flat circle fun times. So going back to 2004, things seem to be bopping along from an organizational standpoint uh, up until like December 15th, uh, when the Lebanese delegation announced that they were withdrawing due to budget issues. Uh, This would have been right around the deadline that countries could withdraw without penalty. So of course, the EBU doesn't want to lose a debuting country over something as silly as an entry fee. So there were some uh, behind the scenes negotiations and wheeling and dealing and all that. And it was announced a few days later that Lebanon, back in the game, everything's fine. There are still going to be 40 countries planning on competing in 2005. With that, it seems like a good time to get into Lebanese history. Addressing the geography question, uh, Lebanon sits on the east end of the Mediterranean Sea. So it borders Israel to the north, and it's kind of nestled on Syria's western border. Right, but still sort of like on like the 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 edge where like you're like, where where like your brain will go, okay, yeah, I guess that's kind of Europe. Right, pretty close to Cyprus as well. So like it's just mm-hmm. in that little like nook area, I guess you could say. So yeah, it was part of the Ottoman Empire through World War One. Uh, then was placed under the control of France through the end of World War Two, and this was designed by like the League of Nations. So it was more of like a caretaker relationship than like straight up colonialism. And France was just kind of put in charge of the Lebanon-Syria area until those countries were able to kind of stand on their own two feet after the uh, dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and um, everything that was happening with World War II. Of course, when you have that sort of setup, that's going to lead to a lot of instability in the area. And Lebanon and Israel have had varying degrees of conflict Pretty much from the get-go, uh, there was a Just war. From the start. Yeah, like there was a war in 1948, and uh, Israel invaded the southern part of Lebanon in 1982. And there's been consistent political crisis concerning like Palestinian refugees leaving Israel, getting to Lebanon. They're able to stay in Lebanon, but they're not able to get like work permits. Along with that instability, Lebanon had a civil war in the mid-70s, and that allowed uh, for Syria to do its own military occupation uh, of the country. So yeah, it's just been a lot of turmoil pretty much for the last 50 years. Uh, The situation did start to change in the early 2000s. Um, Israel withdrew from the occupied areas in the south uh, in the year 2000. And 
This one's of particular interest to me because growing up, like my hometown has a very large uh, Lebanese, Palestinian, and Syrian population. Uh, A lot of people who were displaced by all of the conflict that was happening uh, in those areas. And when that withdrawal happened in 2000, there were parades in the street in my hometown. And like, I'm I'm from Michigan originally, so it's weird to re-examine this in this particular lens because it's like, oh, I didn't realize that things were going to get so full circle here. But mm-hmm. uh, so Israel withdrew from its uh, occupied areas in the south, and Syria's then president died in office, and these circumstances allowed for resistance to Syria to develop within Lebanon. Eurovision's not a political contest, but there's a lot of politics happening. Exactly. There's a lot of politics happening in the periphery. It should be noted that uh, Syria's relationship with Israel wasn't great at this time either. I mean, if you recall from our flags episode, there was Israel's performers in the 2000 contest were waving Syrian flags, like asking for peace. And then immediately getting like faxes from Israel going, "We like, who are you? Right. Go away. Exactly. So although the tide was kind of turning against the Syrian regime in Lebanon, the Syrian regime was still in power and made some legal changes like while they were there. For example, in September of 2004, the constitution in Lebanon was amended so that Article 13 now reads, and I'll quote, The freedom of opinion, expression through speech and writing, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom of association are all guaranteed within the scope of the law. That sounds fine. I mean, that that sounds very similar to our First Amendment. Yeah, it seems, seems straightforward enough. Yeah, until you consult the penal code. And Article 317, which criminalizes the publication of content that incites sectarian or racist strife, and broadcast media are forbidden from airing content that could damage the nation's economy, depict unsanctioned political or religious gatherings, or promotes relations with Israel. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that makes things very difficult very quickly so if you go back to our timeline for the contest it's like oh hey we're we're roughly 2004 2005 i'm sure that won't affect anything yeah uh so you've got the constitution getting amended in september 2004 uh tel laban announces eurovision uh, participation in october the list of participants is probably seen by Tel Laban in December, and their lawyers are probably saying, uh, cinq minutes, s'il vous plaît. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the EBU steps in and says not to worry, keeps Lebanon in the contest. Things seem fine. Until February 14th, 2005, former Prime Minister Rafiki Hariri of Lebanon is assassinated in a car bomb incident. Oh, dang. Yeah. The resistance in Lebanon, which will soon be called the Cedar Revolution, uh, accuses Syria of carrying out the attack. Meanwhile, Syria accuses Israel of carrying out the attack. And the region is understandably unstable at this point. And it should be noted that like in Kyiv, they're also dealing with like revolution happening. Uh, the Orange Revolution was happening at like November, December of 2004 and kind of uh, winding down January, February of 2005, all while like Eurovision preparations are happening. So it's really kind of a wild time and I'd forgotten how like tumultuous. Yeah, yeah, like just all of these things are happening. 
I'm just I'm just thinking like because like Keeb is planning and just like telling everybody no it's gonna be like nope it's gonna be great we're gonna have so much fun in May. If you recall the organizational difficulties that were happening in 2017. Oh, I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. Ooh. Pretty much the same thing was happening in 2005. Uh, like there were blocks of hotels that like weren't properly blocked, and then they're just like, oh right, we got to do that. So they blocked the hotels. It, it resulted in the cancellation of hotel rooms for several delegations. <laughs> so. That was a big old mess. And of course, like the revolution's also throwing the currency all out of whack. So just sounded like so much going on all at once. As, as bad as organization has been uh, the last few years, not that it's been like super terrible compared to this. Everything's fine. You know, <laughs> everything's great. Yeah. yeah nothing so, to worry about. Now we're up to March of 2005. Selections are in. We're counting down the days until the first semifinal, uh, which is scheduled for May 19th. However, it comes to the attention of the EBU that Lebanon's official Eurovision page is incomplete. The page features a list of the countries competing, but the list does not include Israel. And I did some digging on this uh, and like went onto the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine and, I was about to ask if archive.org had yeah, it. Yeah, and uh, they don't have a lot of uh, content from Lebanon.com, but they did have a couple of polls from uh, their Eurovision page. There's one from February 4th, where all 40 countries are listed, including Israel. But then on March 6th, you can see that the list has been replaced with a link to a similar page on the official Eurovision website. So rather than lebanon.com saying oh israel will be there it's just linking to eurovision.tv and being like yeah just <laughs> lebanon.com is has has said find out more about the participants here mm-hmm. we have nothing to do with this right not great definitely kind of a band-aid situation yeah uh even though the uh website had corrected the issue in a sense this did raise a red flag for the ebu um, and it's important to note that like one of the rules of the contest is that, except in the case of broadcasters needing to include commercials, because not all of the participating broadcasters are state broadcasters, they can cut into like green room segments to do commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. Or if there's like emergency circumstances, like the uh, fireworks factory disaster that happened in the Netherlands, all the broadcasters have to air the contest in full. Yeah, like you can air your commercials during green room time. You cannot air all of your commercials during Israel's performance. Right, right. And like an extreme example of this happening was back in 1978, where Jordan was broadcasting the contest. They weren't participating. They were just airing it. But they pretty much disavowed Israel's presence completely, like to the point where they said that Belgium won. Belgium came in second. Israel won that year. And uh, when Israel was doing their victory performance, they were just showing video of flowers in a field. That would not fly for so many reasons if if any country tried to do that uh, today. So uh, the EBU really needed to figure out like what is going to happen here. So that's where we're at. Lebanon's constitution and penal code explicitly forbid broadcasting anything promoting relations with Israel. Relations between Lebanon and Israel had been on the mend, but the assassination of Hariri like really thrown a spanner in the works. The EPU 
already sees the writing on the wall or rather the absence of writing on yeah. the yep. <laughs> on the wall <laughs> so they ask Tella Laban to confirm that there will be no shenanigans in May and they can't make that promise we're well past the withdrawal deadline at this point so it doesn't matter like Lebanon's not debuting in Kiev and due to the late withdrawal they had to pay a fine they were banned for the contest for the following three years, so they weren't going to be debuting in Greece after Greece had won in 2005. They weren't going to be singing along to Hard Rock Hallelujah or going to Finland. They weren't going to be in Serbia either. Like Their first participation would have been possibly Moscow, but there hasn't been any indication that Lebanon's going to try to participate anytime soon. And since then, tensions continue to escalate in the area. 2006, like Lebanon and Israel were pretty much at war with one another. And the Lebanese PM uh, said that his country would be the last Arab country to make peace with Israel. Yeah, just just like a real downer. Yeah. yeah and like, I feel like there are always nations that like the day after Eurovision happens, someone has already updated Wikipedia to say, no, guys, we're, we're not coming back mm -hmm. we're, or or please, please stop calling Tinstein. You're tired of this, Jared. Please stop. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I feel like Lebanon is is not in that list, really. Right. It's unfortunate. I mean, it, it seemed like it could have worked. All of it was just all of these external factors that had absolutely nothing to do with Eurovision, but just the timelines lined up in such a way where it's just like one one event is kind of explaining the other, just providing an interesting context in in which to view this. Like coming out of this, it's just like, oh, wow, I feel like I have a better understanding of all of the kind of interwoven tensions going on in, in that region and mm -hmm. just how layered and conflicted it is. And yeah, I mean, it's like this is a very weird context for approaching that understanding, but I'm grateful for it in a way where it's mm -hmm. just like I'm, I'm – better understanding like like my yeah, former like I, neighbors I not, and I, I, what they were struggling with i did not with. expect the thing to connect these these dots to be eurovision right yeah and just like and all of this stuff was happening like while i was aware in the world you know <laughs> like this was mm -hmm. this would have been my senior year of college so it's like yeah I, I am aware of other things that are happening in the world right now but having that reminder it's like wow there was a lot going on at this time it's a tough history lesson, but I, I'm appreciating having gone through it uh, in researching this episode. Agreed. Um, so yeah, that's... <laughs> so that's a fun place to end Yeah, I guess. Week. Yeah, it's tough, but... Sorry to bring down the room, everybody. We'll have more fun uh, in, in the next episode. But yeah, that's going to do it for this episode of the EuroWhat. Thank you for listening. The EuroWhat podcast is hosted by Mike McComb, that's me, and Ben Smith. That's me. You can find us on our website at eurowhat.com and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at eurowhat. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. You can subscribe to the EuroWhat on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice. Rating and reviewing the podcast when you subscribe also helps other Eurovision fans find us. Next time on the EuroWhat, our senior Hatari correspondent Ben will be filing a report about the Iceland Airwaves Festival.